Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. We're walkers and we're makers. We make things out of what we find in the natural world and we transform it. And it's and cities are, are maybe the, the foremost example of that. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. As our audience knows, I usually invite a speaker to discuss some new book or some idea, some controversial idea, non-controversial idea, and the same is true today. I'm usually blessed by a great speaker, and this is the case today, too. Before I jump in the conversation, though, and before I introduce you to our wonderful speaker, I wanted to invite you all to some reflection and to use a little of your imagination. So imagine, first of all, that you are at home and you're trying to read a good novel or to write a letter to a dear friend. Now, how many of you, and I'm speaking to all, young and old, are capable of doing it and of enjoying that free time in a very messy room? Or in a room where furniture colors and style are totally not matching. Or sitting at a desk where the chair is too low or too high. Now, okay, I'm sure that some of you can. You can read that book, you can write the letter. But just imagine doing the same thing, performing the same task in the tidiest, most comfortable room of your house, or better, in the suite of a nice resort. Tidy, perfumed, clean. Maybe there's even a nice view, nice little music in the background. Now, most of us would appreciate more the second scenario. And also, we would be more productive probably in the second scenario. And so the question is, why? Why is that? Is it just because our eyes are distracted by an asymmetric room? Is it a social construct? Is it a bourgeois concept? Or is there something in order, in cleansiness, in beauty, that is conducive to human flourishing? to all our activities and in our enjoyment performing them. And then, again, I want to invite you to a second thought experiment. Imagine that you're living alone in New York for a moment, right? You're, you're there, you're single, you're living in a small and yet very expensive flat, and you're home alone for dinner. It's late, you feel lonely. You never met your neighbors, your real neighbors, if not with a brief hello. And you could call up that friend with kids whom you love, both him and his kids, and invite his family over. However, besides being packed in your flat, they wouldn't be there any sooner than like one hour. That always assuming that they have the right car with all the children's seat and they can make it. Now in a different hypothesis, you're still a single man or a single woman, but you live in the middle of a little town, the same one where you grew up, and where most of your friends still live. Nobody moved. Now, what are the odds that you'd end up watching Netflix alone there? And where do you think you'd be happier? Right. So now, that, as I've asked this question, some of you have come up with some answers that maybe are going to change you know, your ideas of when you want to move after college. Um, but why did I ask these questions? I asked them because they're obvious answers tell us something that is equally intuitive about human nature. And to talk more about these truths, about things that we can't not know, and therefore we can't not talk about, I have the great joy and honor 
to introduce you to our wonderful guest, Professor Philip Bess. Good morning, Professor, and welcome on our show. Good morning, Mariana. How are you? I'm doing fine. Yeah, it's it's um, it's hard not to be happy in Texas, but um, doing great. How, where are you, and how are you? Well, I'm I'm actually I'm in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, Notre Dame, the University of Notre Dame, where I teach, is uh, located nearby, and uh, I am sitting on my side porch on a glorious uh, late, very late summer uh, morning and uh, enjoying it very much. I was recently in Texas, though, and uh, I enjoyed Texas very much, too. And, you know, Scoop, you're going to be back. We're bringing you back to Texas in the spring. So the listeners should just check our website for the date when that is going to happen, but you're going to give a talk here. So now that you know, let's, let's start our conversation of today. So, Philip, may I describe today's episode as a conversation on the natural law embedded in our cities? Yes, which is, I'll add, is a controversial topic. Yeah, I think, well, what is controversial is to, in rate, is to say that there are, there is even something that we can call true. So the fact that we had obvious answers to those questions that I was mentioning is already a problem. Uh, we might just be very, you know, biased. And of course, we, we have inherited that bias. But that's setting that aside for just a second. Um, I would like to discuss on this um, conversation that we're going to have today, I'd like to discuss some of the things you wrote on this very topic. So in the relationship between natural law and architecture and urban planning and that you teach. But first, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit to our audience so that they know more about you and I don't make huge mistakes? No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. Well, I'm a professor of architecture at the University of Notre Dame. I uh, have been at Notre Dame for about uh, 20 years. It'll be 20 years in January. Uh, before that, I taught for 10 years at a, a small Seventh-day Adventist college in Southwest Michigan. And before that, I uh, lived and worked professionally as an architect in Chicago and actually commuted uh, between that small college, Andrews University in Chicago for 10 years before I came to Notre Dame and, and moved to South Bend. But my family and I lived, uh, my wife and I raised uh, three children in Chicago, in the city of Chicago. We, we lived there for uh, 25 years. I like to describe myself as a Chicagoan from California because I was born in uh, West Suburban Chicago and moved with my family at the age of six to Southern California. And I lived there between 1958 and 1973, which I, I would kind of regard as, as peak California. But then I, I, I went to graduate school on the East Coast. And uh, and then I went back to Chicago because I wanted to see the Cubs play. So I've, I've been a lifelong Cub fan. And so that's my roundabout story in terms of uh, how I started and wound up, at least in the Midwest, in the orbit of metropolitan Chicago. In one of the best universities in this country, too. I want to add this, that Professor Bess is also the author of numerous articles and of three books. Three? Still three? Are there more? Yes, two books. <laughs> City Baseball Magic, Plain Talk and a Common Sense about Cities and Baseball Parks. Inland Architecture, Subterranean Essays on Moral Order and Formal Order in Chicago. And Till We Have Built Jerusalem, Architecture, Urbanism and the Sacred. That was the latest in 2006. He also humbly didn't mention that he holds an undergraduate degree in philosophy from Whittier College, a graduate degree in church history from Harvard, and a graduate degree in architecture from the University of Virginia, of course. But like, do you have any more degrees in store that, you know, any more graduates? No, no, no more degrees uh, coming up. Um, 
the, the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, they lowered their standards and and uh, made me a fellow, but uh, that's... <laughs> well, and you were was... a fellow at Princeton, which is also one of the ways I've, you know, come in contact with you. Philip, why did you even decide to study architecture? Ah, uh, well, let's see. As an undergraduate, I found myself studying philosophy and religion. I should say my, my background, uh, religious background, is that my father uh, was an American Baptist minister. And so I was raised, um, you know, raised um, as an American Baptist. And I I wound up studying philosophy and religion, really just because I was interested in the questions, um, didn't really have any idea. I, my, let's see, I am not a model for how to, how to uh, pursue a career path. Um, when I graduated, I I was awarded a fellowship to go to uh, Harvard uh, Divinity School. I actually, was just to spend one year in seminary. It was for persons who weren't otherwise thinking of going into the ministry, and at the end of that year, decided that I did not want to go into the ministry, and I took a year off. And while I was uh, living in Western Massachusetts, I worked uh, helping to build a home that was designed by a couple of guys who had designed it. And I have to say, you know, until I was 23 years old, the thought never occurred to me uh, about, about being an architect or being a designer. And I really, I really enjoyed it. And so I decided two things that summer. One is that I would go back to Harvard and complete a, a two-year master, the second year of a two-year master's degree, uh, and would just study church history because I, I wanted to know more about the history of the Christian church. And also decided I would apply to architecture school at that time and uh, or after that. And so during that year, I, I actually found myself studying Baptist, but in studying Baptist, realized that I actually was a Catholic. And um, uh, so was was received in the Catholic Church uh, two or three years later and then uh, gotten married uh, in Cambridge and stayed a little longer than than after I graduated. And then my wife and I moved uh, to Virginia where I I did uh, did my degree in architecture at the University of Virginia. Yeah, and your religious story is another one, you know, that it would be interesting to discuss. But what you said about church history and architecture, I think, already leads to some of the things you mentioned, which is that the sacred nature of the things that we build and of beauty, you know, and the talking about church history and architecture, also thinking of the transcendence embedded in some of our buildings. Now, to start a little bit in even in, in Medias Res, if we could say. I would. I wanted to start by saying this, that you know that the Austin Institute is both a strong proponent of natural law and, as our name shows, a center that is focused on the family and on the goodness of marriage. So the first question that I have for you is this. As an architect and as a natural law expert or lover, would you argue that our cities are friendly or hostile to marriage and family, and to children. And then, you know, and we can go from there to instead the individual human flourishing. Sure. Well, I would say historically, no, um, but increasingly more difficult since the advent of the Industrial Revolution and on a trajectory where I don't think that, that it's impossible actually to for families to live well in cities. Uh, I, my wife and I uh, agreed that probably the best thing that that we ever did was raise our kids in the in the Chicago neighborhood that, that we lived in, but the uh, you know historically, I mean, I, I guess my tendency is to view cities in Aristotelian terms, or at least that's what that's what enthuses me about thinking about what cities are and what cities are for, and um, and so for Aristotle, you know, living a a, a good life, a happy life was. Um, 
essentially based on um, a life of moral and intellectual virtue, right? The centrality of, of character virtue, but being social beings that the that we do that in communities and that the the highest community, what he called a community of communities, is the city, where the city, the purpose of the city is to promote human flourishing. And so that certainly includes families uh, historically. And I mean, I, I think that's kind of the a touchstone for all of my thinking about architecture and, and cities. And I came a little late to that, but I'm I'm interested in um I try to live an integrated life as best I can, uh, and with also with respect to my thinking about philosophy and Catholicism and about cities and architecture and human flourishing. So it, it's difficult today, and we can, you know, I'll let you ask a question before uh, further questions before I go on, because um, there's a lot of a lot of discussion to be had about the problems with cities today and what some of their some of the the solutions uh, might be. Yeah, I think we can continue under this. I mean. You do say, so cities are made for that, which is another great point. You have it in some of your writing. I know that I've already told you this, but I, I loved a one sentence a explanation of why the radical traditionalist is just not real or sustainable when you just in, in one sentence said, there is, there's always been the farm and the city and the farm exists to give products to the city and the city to provide the market for the products you know, of the farm. We need both. So the question of like, you know, are cities okay for families. I mean, the answer that I'm happy to have heard is that, you know, we can dispel this myth that in order to live a good life, you need to buy some acres of land alone just with your family, which I think has a series of problems within, you know, just even the thought that, you know, we might not want to discuss today. But so starting by, yes, historically, it's a great, you know, it's a good place for cities, actually the natural place. And you mentioned Aristotle. And so the fact that we need for human flourishing moral excellence and moral excellence, the arts and sciences are communal. In this communal, we have the transgenerational dimension. We have different families, but we also have the, the different generation. So, you know, we live in Austin. We call it a young city. <laughs> and then you go to Florida and then there is the old city. And then you have the tech city and you have the... So is that, is that already a problem? It's a really good question. I mean, cities prior to the Industrial Revolution were comparatively small. And in the ancient world, they were actually there. There's so many cities that uh, that have their roots in the ancient world, as uh, particularly in Europe, as colonial cities of, of the Roman Empire. Uh, and before that, the colonial cities of, of the Greek Empire. Uh, and all of those cities that were founded and they were founded for a variety of, of purposes. I mean, most of them, you know, most of them were, were military, but some of them had to do with facilitating trade routes. Some of them, there's a couple like Bath, England was founded by the Romans around the site of, you know, of natural springs, right? And so it was a, it was a recreational city of sorts. Um, but cities, regardless of the purposes for which they found that were founded, they tend to accumulate, they just, I think of necessity, and I would say by nature, they accumulate a variety of human activities that that makes them urban per se. But one of the characteristics of virtually all of those cities, and this is true as well of human settlements in non-Western cultures uh, that are place-based, is that they start out with a kind of physical limit and that they're generally not larger than about a half mile by a half mile. And the reason that they're, that you see this over and over again, I want to say, uh, is an anthropological reason. 
And it's because human beings are walkers. And a half mile distance is about the distance that it takes a human being to walk in 10 minutes. So, so when you have a half mile square city, it's a 10 minute walk from edge to edge, and it's a five minute walk from center to edge. And so that was a that's a recurring kind of dimension that you see in pre-modern human settlements at their origins. And then the other thing that you mentioned is that again, one of those things that they one of those characteristics that they develop um, almost immediately, they have this relationship to an adjacent landscape. So that for Aristotle, when he talked about, and it's interesting because he talks about this in the in the politics, and in the politics, it's always in English, it's always translated pretty much as um, city state or even just state. So when Aristotle's talking about the state, uh, in English, we say he's talking about the state, but when Aristotle was writing, he was talking about the polis, right? And the polis was this kind of, was a city, actually, in a, a small city at that. But one of its characteristics was that that a city was an agrarian urban unit, right? That a city always had a relationship to its adjacent landscape. So that's kind of embedded in the history of cities. and if you, But if you fast forward, I mean, even the biggest cities I mean, cities kind of went away from the end of the Roman Empire until the the beginning of the, of the 12th century uh, in Europe, in Western Europe. And, uh, you know, monasteries and, and castles were sort of the, the closest thing that you had to cities. And, and, they, and they actually became centers for the growth of these newer cities in the in the 12th century. But uh, even those cities which were based, which were part of Christian culture, they were, you know, commercial in nature. They, they were, they, they kind of existed for thriving commerce. Even those cities never got larger than about fifty thousand people. Venice, you know, got a little bit bigger. Um, and of course, Constantinople was much bigger, but they were in the east. But uh, even like like Bruges was the wealthiest city in northern Europe for three hundred years, between about twelve hundred and fifteen hundred, and and its population was between thirty five thousand and fifty thousand, and um, so these were these were small units, and so the Industrial Revolution changed that completely. It not only kicked off a kind of migration from um, small agricultural villages and and settlements, uh, you know, to the city for factory work, but it also created a environmental conditions that kind of they were dirty and it was crowded and 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 it sort of flipped the view of cities as existing to promote human flourishing to cities as this kind of hellish place that if you could you tried to escape to get back out into nature right uh with with cleaner air and and a place to raise children and obviously the cities have gone through cycles i mean i mean there's whole there's a 200 year history post industrial revolution history of urban reform movements that you know that i could that i could tick off that all of which have to do with ameliorating the difficulties that the industrial revolution called you know created for um traditional urban life but modernism was one of those i mean and and they weren't all you know they they've all been uh successful or unsuccessful to different degrees but uh we're in the middle you know we're in media res you know in terms of 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 where we are historically still trying to deal with making human settlements what their relationship is to the natural landscape and how we can live humanely and i and it's just it's a it's a really interesting time to do that but it's a significant problem but it also represents significant opportunities as well Wow, you touched on so many things you know and it's beautiful because if anyone listening to us is thinking about you know studying architecture or 
arts. Um, they just have a, a lot of reasons now to be even more interested and wanting to know more. But staying on what we can discuss today, you know, there's a, something you said, human beings are walkers. Now, I know where I want to go with this, but like, can't we say, couldn't we say that now we wear walkers, but, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, we also changed. We don't need to walk anymore. We can we can find the same happiness, but like, got in our car and doing that. Like, there is not a quality that is embedded in that. What I'm thinking about here now, just so you know, is what you taught me in your writings about the new, what is, what's their name? The new urbanists? Yes. <laughs> new urbanism? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do we make of it? Are we still walkers or no, we've changed. We can use AI. We, we don't need to walk. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting question um, because I don't think that anthropologically we have ceased to be walkers. Now, that doesn't mean that mechanized means of transport are necessarily bad things. Mechanized means of, tr of transport, they create opportunities, they create externalities and negative externalities, all of those things. But I think that one of the problems that we have with the built environment today is that we've started in a way unprecedented. Since about 1950, we have been, been making built environments that were really built for cars and not for walkers. And one of the interesting things, if you go to any European city, if you go to any American um, city that existed prior to 1945, there will be a historic center and it will be laid out in networks of streets and blocks and there'll be a main street and there'll be stores with, you know, that are mixed use that have retail at grade and offices or apartments above, above the stores. And this is true in both big cities and in small towns um, so that the formal pattern of these older big cities and of small towns is the same. It's simply that the big cities are made up of, imagine them as a collection of small towns at slightly higher density where, I mean, and Chicago is a classic example. Chicago is a city of neighborhoods and, you know, New York City is, is a city of neighborhoods. It's not all, New York City is not just Manhattan and Chicago is, is not just the loop. But they have in common with these smaller towns, this network of streets and blocks with a variety of activities within pedestrian proximity, but they all adapt to the car. Cars are part of the life of, of all of those pre-1945 cities, but that's not true of the, of the new settlements that we've built since 1950. And it's not like, actually, even these small towns, to the extent that they have uh, expanded into the landscape in, a, in an automobile suburban way, just doing that tends to suck a lot of the activity out of the the historic core that people used to be able to to walk to the best image that i know of is a is a little graphic image by um a european architect very influential person in the in the neo traditional urban movement a guy by the name, a belgian by the name no luxembourgeois by the name of leon creer and he says a city is like a pizza a neighborhood is like a slice of pizza and that the slice of pizza has on it all the ingredients that are on the rest of the pizza. And a suburb is like you take the ingredients of the pizza and you put the crust over here and you put the tomato sauce over there and you the marinara and you put the you put the cheese over there and you put the pepperoni over there and you make it you have to you have to drive to all of those things. And so it's 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 really not a pizza because in an Aristotelian sense, it doesn't have the form of a pizza. 
because a form of the pizza has all of those things. And so, and this is an interesting thing because the new urbanists certainly think that the form of cities has all of these. And again, whether they're in small towns or whether they're in city neighborhoods, traditional cities are walkable and have this mix of, of activities within pedestrian proximity, but they don't think in Aristotelian terms. Most of them don't. You, you talk about it in terms of the form of the pizza and the form of the city, because it's kind of intuitively Aristotelian common sense, um, you know, empirical observation, but they, they, for whatever reason, they don't want to talk about it in Aristotelian terms. Yeah, just for our audience that might not know exactly who the new urbanists are, two words more about that and like, what is it that they stand for? Okay. The Congress for the New Urbanism was founded in 1993, and it was founded by a collection of mostly architects, virtually all of whom were educated as modernists, and who after, you know, being in the profession, and they were in their, they were in their early to mid 40s, maybe in their, you know, early 40s and, and early 50s. And uh, just from their work, they had come to think that uh, the way that we were making built environments since 1950 was catastrophic for a variety of reasons. It was catastrophic uh, environmentally, it was catastrophic um, socially, it was catastrophic economically. And a lot of them They formed these ideas, you know, from like the mid 70s up and, you know, up, up through the early 90s. And gradually they started to find each other. And when they found each other, they formed uh, what I, I characterize as a classic Tocquevillian American association, you know, free association to pursue traditional urbanism. But they called themselves the new urbanists. Part of that was, I think, a marketing thing because they wanted to be new But it, it's it's caused a little confusion. It's not a it's not a bad name because traditional is a controversial word. Neo traditional is controversial. Urban is controversial, and so there's always this problem of having to explain that the the name doesn't quite explain everything at the label. But here's how I characterize new urbanism, and I I think that it's accurate, but it may not be the way that new urbanists characterize themselves. New urbanists seek traditional walkable mixed use neighborhoods. New urbanists seek traditional urban form in a legal and cultural context of sprawl, that that's what's new about it. They're seeking traditional ways of making human settlements in a legal and cultural context of sprawl. And that phrase, that's what's new, the legal and cultural context of sprawl in most places makes walkable mixed use neighborhoods literally illegal. Uh, to make them are literally illegal. And so, a lot of the new urbanist effort, and I would say in some ways the most successful new urbanist efforts, because there are a number of new urbanist projects that are out there, uh, some of which are excellent, some of which are are problematic in, in a variety of ways. Usually formally, usually they're they're pretty good, but there are there are other issues. We can come back to that. But what they I, I think that apart from the exemplary projects, good and bad, that new urbanists have created, the most significant contribution that they've made is to think of a different way of doing zoning, where they have had to go in in order to do these projects, they've had to create alternative forms, alternative kinds of zoning law that allows them to make walkable mixed-use neighborhoods uh, as of right. That's an ongoing thing. Uh, new urbanism is one of those ameliorative Uh, post-industrial revolution movements that is trying to deal with the effects of the industrial revolution and its history. I mean, as a European that loves, you know, are my little town where I was born, but loves the States too much to go back there. I liked all their principles, right? The list of principles that they were uh, 
listing. And even what you're saying, the mixed use and walkable. I mean, if only I could have, you know, a little bakery, a walking distance and a hairdresser walking distance like that, the kind of things I used to have. I'm sure those exist in Austin, by the way. I'm sure those they neighborhoods do. They do. And it's not that it's not that bad. It's probably that when it's 110, you don't even want to walk for two minutes. But yep. that said, what I find interesting is that you say at the same time, these people, this that you knew urbanist would not agree with some of the things that you always say, such as human beings, by definition, need freedom and belonging. Right. Okay. So could you tell me more about that, you know, disagreement? Where is, like, how do things stand? Like, what's, what's the situation there? I want to say so that I would I would say that the majority of the founders and not certainly not all of them, the majority of the founders of the Congress for the New Urbanism um, lean, lean left politically. Uh, there's a few that lean right. I tend to lean right. But I would say that the the general character of the of the organization is it leans left politically, but in a classical, well, not classical liberal in the sense of laissez-faire everything, but cla- a sort of pre a kind of a kind of 60s democratic party liberalism right and so you know pro civil rights and you know now pro environmental and all of those things and I, I actually think that those are good arguments but so you asked this question about what my view of things on a spectrum of freedom and belonging right and 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 i guess one of the things that i've thought for a long time and i and i'm, I'm still trying to articulate it well is, is that Human freedom is is an objective good, and human beings want to be free uh, to be able to make decisions and direct, you know, uh, over the direction of their of their lives. And in a, in a certain, I want to say, we want that kind of freedom in a in a penultimate sense, right? In a political sense, we really we want we we want that kind of thing. That freedom is a great good. It's also the case that human beings find communal belonging to be a great good, whether it's at the scale of your neighborhood or whether it's at the scale of any, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm my view, what I mean by a community is, is any group of people that share a, a common end. Right. And so for me, one of the most concrete examples, one of the happiest periods of my life was uh, about a 10 year period when I lived in Chicago and I coached uh, my son's baseball teams. And in the course of that, I made really good friends with about a half a dozen dads who and moms too, but but especially the dads who would come out and uh, coaching the kids who included we had we had girls on the team too and 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 actually we, I was very proud of of all of that because of course we wanted to win the games but the objective was really to turn them into good baseball players and so there was a lot of a lot of satisfaction in seeing kids who really didn't understand the game of baseball by the time you know they finished the season or had you know moved up that they 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 knew something about the game. But what I mean by community, because it doesn't have to be sports, it can be music, it can be, uh, you know, it, it could be future farmers of America. But any any group of people that share a common end, right, is a community. And we find satisfaction in that. And the satisfaction is working with other people toward a shared goal and doing our role, right, in making in in the success of the, of that enterprise, and writ large, that's kind of that's what in at least certainly in, in an Aristotelian and a Thomist sense as well. Writ large, that's the nature of a of a city, and it's a community of communities, and it, and and it requires a certain I mean political skills, right, to pursue common goods, right, to to help people achieve a common good, and and the laws that do that. 
that is an intellectual virtue of sorts. It requires character, but it's a but it's a kind of virtue to have those political skills. So so my sense is that political discourse, that human beings simultaneously want to be free and want communal belonging, and that there's there inevitably arises a kind of tension between those two, where it, you know you need to make choices. You know whether you lean in one direction or lean in the other, and my sense of politics as they used to be and as they should be, good political discourse takes place and acknowledges both of these objectives of freedom and belonging. And, you know, it may be that more, you know, what we call conservative politicians would lead more toward freedom and 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 liberal politicians or progressive politicians would lean a little bit more toward communal belonging. But if you wipe out either end, if you don't, if you don't somehow acknowledge, right, that you're engaged in a common enterprise, where you're trying to achieve as a political community those goods, both of those goods, then things really start to fall apart. And, and so there's a lot of people outside the boundaries of that political discourse, too far right, too far left, that emphasize one is the good, is the only good. And I feel like too much of our of our discourse is there. And it's interesting, I find that Catholic social teaching, uh, in terms of a set of principles, you know, they're they're set of principles that are in some ways in tension with each other. But I think that that one of the significant things about Catholic social teaching is that it recognizes both the, you know, the the imperative of social solidarity and the good of the individual person and, and individual flourishing. And, and I will say about new urbanists, right, that that discourse among new urbanists, even though they lean left, it takes place within that spectrum, right? So there is room in the Congress for new urbanism for you know, for more conservative, the conservative minority, but it's it's a minority, and and it's also it's also a secular thing. I mean, there's a there's an organization, a sub organization within the CNU, I think, called uh, Christians um, or uh, Christian New Urbanists or something like that. Um, and and so that's there, but it, but the fact that it has to be like a subgroup, right, it indicates that it's in some ways it's not it's not part of the general recognized ethos, which I, I mean, I, I tend to think of as a little more secular. Now, there just one more note, there's there've been new, younger uh, groups that have that have begun pursuing similar kinds of ends, and they collaborate with the new urbanists, but they're younger, and they're a little bit different. And I think the most significant or one of the most significant ones of them is, um, is a movement called strongtowns.org. And it's a it's a nice compliment to the CNU, because uh, I think because the CNU is a little politically progressive, a little a little secular, a little more environmentalist in its concerns, the concerns of strong towns are a little more libertarian, but also communal. But they are uh, economic. They're about the economic uh, difficulties with uh, sprawl culture, um, and they're also they're also younger, and they're also uh, they seem to be much more sympathetic to to religious sensibilities. I mean, I, I know they and again, it's not. It's not like a religious platform, but I know that the you know the founder and many of the people who are actively involved in it are actively involved in it uh, for religious motivations. So it's a it's a nice compliment. And and I mean I think that the thing about about cities is that cities and again this is like you know the Catholic Church is for everybody, but the Catholic Church is you know the objective we're seeking or we're you know our our the end for which we hope right is the New Jerusalem is the city of God and that's for everybody too. And so I, I find it's a, I think it's an important corrective to the kind of political culture that we have now. But it's very difficult to get traction for me anyway, to get traction, even among my colleagues, 
uh, with the idea of um, traditional walkable mixed-use urbanism being not just a personal preference, because all of my colleagues think that it's an objective good, but we don't. They don't have a language to talk exactly. about objective. So that's that's where I wanted to go. That what you underline about those ten points or twelve points that the new urbanists make is like what makes a city good and how cities should be. Is that precisely that they use the word should, and they yeah. use right? They use the, the use these verbs like it ought to, like it should be, and so yeah. these are all our assumptions on what we're meant for and on what we like. And then the disagreement boils down on like, oh, wait, why is that? Is there something true, objectively true, universally true about the human person, which is, I think, where we want to stay, right? So we are the Institute for the Family and Culture, but with the preconception that family is not just one way human beings can exist in this particular moment in history. This is the way human beings exist. So the tragedy of the crisis of marriage is a tragedy because it's not humanely normal. Like this is not part of how humanity was built. The fact that we need to call people over a screen to see them, it's a novelty. And I think, you know, what what I like about the way you address architecture and cities and beauty is precisely that going back to who are we? What do we need? And so on the theme of belonging, the thing that I'm asking you is like, don't you, would you agree that Today's cities, because of their dimension and because of the way we interact with each other, because we don't, you know, we don't live next to each other, they create opportunities for belonging, but they never force us to belong. Like we can opt in and out right. with an ease that, you know, I don't know that it really is belonging. You know, it's interesting. You know, we, you and I have talked a little bit off camera about about Chesterton. And uh, one of the things, one of the themes of Chesterton uh, in his writings that come over and over again, and he was a big fan. He was a big fan of freedom. He was a big fan of communal belonging. But, but one of the points that he emphasized about freedom um, is, is the vow, right? Uh, Is that we're free to take vows and we take vows that bind us. Uh, And a vow is made, uh, is made to God. And a vow is made uh, in the context of sacred order. And so, when you sort of remove notions of sacred order, when you remove notions of of voluntary obligation, then you get a culture that, you know, that's transitory. And I mean, human beings can't, I mean, individual human beings, I, I would say by the grace of God and uh, can find their way out of very difficult, precarious origins and precarious circumstances. But on the whole, you, you know, to not, provide children in particular, you know, with a, with a, a, a stable environment uh, in which to grow into young adults, boy, they're really at a handicap. And that, and that reverberates all throughout society over the course of a lifetime and over the course of generations. So, so freedom is a, is a particularly important thing, but freely chosen obligations, I think, are, are another particularly important thing. I could not agree more with what you just said. And the idea that an obligation or a commitment and is a vow it's forever, right? So I take, I close one door. It's something that Truman brought up when we were discussing that one of the problems of today is not the amount of option, is that these options remain open. And so, right. It's, right. Yeah. And so there is never, there is never growth in any direction right. because you can always, can always change your mind, go back and. 
There are so many things that you wrote that I would like to talk about, but I don't want to go longer than an hour. That's usually what what I try to stay within. So let's let me let me go on this. So you do talk about freedom. You talk about belonging. You talk about beauty. Where do you find beauty today? Uh, you know, <laughs> this is going to sound like I like I have this through my tongue. I don't know why, but it's it's a little a little. A little snippet of a, of a poet with whom I'm not. I mean, I'm familiar, obviously, by name, and and I, I'm an admirer, but not knowledgeable. But Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, a line, one of his line in one of his poems is, "The world is charged with the grandeur of God," and that I think is true. And that is, uh, that is that grandeur of God is in a way it's what beauty is and and uh, even even in the artifacts that human beings make um because i mean there's a and again i'm not i'm not intimately you know i guess the 19th century romanticists what they made a distinction between the sublime the the beauty of nature and the the, the awesome character and 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 terrifying character of nature which is interestingly is a kind of it's a kind of naturalization of a religious experience, right? The, the 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 awesome, terrifying character of God that also draws you to your vocation, right? But there's beauty as we find it uh, in the natural world. But there's you know there's beauty uh, in human artifacts, and I want to say that human artifacts, as things that we make, we make them for a number of reasons, right? We make them for practical purposes. We make them uh, in, I mean, it's the way, I mean, we are, we're walkers and we're makers. We make things out of what we find in the natural world and we transform it. And it's, and cities are, are maybe the, the foremost example of that as a way that, that, as that human animals occupy the landscape. But I think that the, you know, we make things maybe for utilitarian purposes. We make them for practical purposes, but if you do it long enough and you're really kind of if your vocation is to make things, I think that there's a natural impulse to make them as well as we can. And ultimately, that means to make them beautiful. Right. And that and that that's so that in a way, the ultimate end of making things is beauty. The ultimate purpose uh, tell us of of making things is is to is to make beautiful things. And so, I mean, landscapes, agricultural landscapes are in some cultures really beautiful things um you probably you may know uh, the the town of pienza and one it's it's a it's a wonderful place i mean i've been there several times uh don't don't know it all that well but it is striking you know it's a very small settlement it's only about maybe 20 to 30 acres and it's a beautiful town and it sits in a spectacular agricultural landscape and that landscape has been tended for a long time and it's really it is an art, right? Agriculture is a is a cooperative art, and it's and so it's not just a productive landscape; it's a beautiful landscape, and it was made that way by human beings interacting with you know natural an, a natural environment. But then that that's true of cities as well. I mean, it 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 sort of it cascades down. Uh, Murcia Iliada has a a characterization of the sacred in human life, and this is cross cultural. He says the sacred is always at the center. He's talking about in the pre-modern world. Uh, our sensibilities have changed, I think, for the worse in this regard. But he says, in the pre-modern world, the sacred is always at the center. And he says, it can be at the scale of the nation, you know, of Israel. It can be at the scale of the of the city, Jerusalem. It can be at the scale of the building, the temple. It can be at the scale inside the temple, at the, at the altar of, the, of sacrifice. It can be at the scale of religious 
you know, icons or, you know, uh, reminders that you have in your house, you know, before which you, you know, in, in, where where you engage in private devotions. And and that what it has in common is that it's always at the always at the center. And so I I, you know, I I see beauty in again, almost any <laughs> almost any pre-1950 built environment. And it exists in the I mean, you know, we I mean human beings, we we trash environments and we I wouldn't say that we've made a lot of beautiful environments uh, since the 1950s, but there, there's certainly beautiful buildings and places. But I think we've lost in losing a sense of the sacred, right? In the in the contemporary world, I think we've also lost um, a sense of beauty as, a, as an objective thing. And so we tend to think of beauty as just something subjective, but I, I really don't think that it is. I think it's a constituent element of reality in the same way that it's a kind of a constituent element of human nature that we both want to be free and want to belong. Yeah. Wow. So many things. So okay, let me say this. You made me think of this. The loss of the sense of the sacred for those who even, you know, do not believe or is also it I think it pairs up with a sense with a lot losing the sense that our life is limited. And only if our life is limited, we want to create things that will you know, live longer than us. That will be the reasons we're, but if we lose sight of the limited nature of our life and we just live in this illusion that, you know, we're always going to be young and healthy and going to the gym and posting pictures, then, you know, like there is, I think it makes less sense to do things well. And the Mm. only thing that you want is to just, you know, get to the next day. On the other hand, on a positive, like, to justify today's culture that seems so fixated with, you know, Instagram posts. And I think, you know, as you were speaking, like, are there things where I see people caring about the actual result, like how something really looks? And so there is, an, I mean, an immense amount of time that goes into, you know, taking the right video, making the right reel and adding the right music like that. It just tells that, True, you know, it's made because you want people to see you. It might be the wrong medium, but it just says that we are still all attracted by that which is beautiful. And as you say, it's not subjective. Like yeah. there is something objective. And as you wrote in one of your in the papers that I wrote, you know, that doesn't mean that there is only one thing that is beautiful. Right. right. There are many different things, but they all have something in common. And then, you know, throughout the centuries, philosophers have put those, those things together. I think that, and I would like to close, we, I wanted to, to talk about so many more things, but I don't think we have time to do that. One thing though that I think is a great final or almost final question was something that you, were, you just mentioned about talking about Pienza. You talked mm-hmm. about the agrarian landscape there and the fact that it has been like that for a long time. And in one of the, I think it's a talk you gave on design and happiness, right? Whether whether design can make us happiness or whether design can create community. You write that design creates a framework, but then it takes, to, in order for us to, to, to be happy or to have community within it, it takes time and care, right? So, and, and when you were discussing these things, I was, you know, I mean, think, oh, that's what people call the woman's touch, Right, like in uh, called the what the woman's touch, like in a you enter this you know a new flat of a a, a male friend that lives in his own, and immediately realize you know like that there is that that is missing. But then I thought that more than that is the time and care that I mentioned, 
right? So, and then somewhere else you write, you know, we don't, we don't love great cities. Cities are great because we love them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this dimension as an architect and as a professional, someone is this dimension of care and time present in the people that build today or in, you know, it, I would not say, I mean, I think that everybody wants, likes to think that they, that they build well. So I, I, I think that the, uh, everyone I know, and I'm, and my experience is lim- is limited. So I'm, I'm sure I have colleagues with more experience who, who, whose experiences are, you know, they might say something different, but everyone I know who's involved in the building trades, they generally want to do a good job. Um, but we have somehow managed, I, I think I was, when I was talking earlier about, um, New urbanism being traditional urbanism pursued in the context of sprawl, right? In in the in the legal and cultural context of sprawl, is that it's hard to pursue beauty in a in a context of building culture, modern building culture, where so much of what is built uh, is based upon speed and cost, uh, and of in a certain inevitable way a race to the bottom, and built on speculation. We don't build houses. Persons don't build houses for their families. Housing is a is a product, right? And and we you know it's it's created as a product. It's purchased as a as an investment. The resale value is a is a high thing. And so so that we just don't we don't have a culture that encourages us to make durable, beautiful things because durability is not the durability of our lives. Right? Say so our lives are so transient um, in in a certain kind of way. And so. One of the things that I would say has been a big and, and remains a, a, a huge um, interest uh, in my professional and, and personal life is trying to identify communities that intend to be around for uh, multi-generations, multiple generations, who have an interest, who should have a natural interest in making durable and beautiful buildings uh, because they're going to be there. So, So there's a you know, I mean, being uh, let's see, being a pilgrim, being an immigrant. I mean, that's a that's a huge part of much of the the human condition. But being making a home, making a place, right, and uh, and making it durable and beautiful is also a big part of of, of being human. So I don't think we do as well at that uh, as a culture. I understate. You know, I I even see. I think we are very fixated on how you know the first furniture we buy and like the. The interior designer that comes and does this great job, but then you enter these places and they're just, there is something that, yes, they're objectively right and rightly made. But if you feel that nobody is taking care of it constantly, mm. like yeah. you lose, they, they're not even attractive. Um, yeah. And I think that everyone, you know, listening can relate to that feeling. Just like there's nothing you can complain about in this new flat, but it misses something. Like there is, Again, that I think that the time and care is that love, you know, love being the greatest and best architect of all. I told you that I wanted to do something related to Chesterton, and I think we should close with that. And I think the best way to introduce that would be to say, we are so controversial here that we believe there is such thing as human nature. <laughs> we believe such thing that there is an objective truth. And we also believe that beauty and order are not necessarily at odds. And there might be something in this, you know, obligation and rules and like proper, the, the objective proper that is, is a good thing and it's not a bad thing. So the best way to do that 
is to read together, as you kindly agreed, a passage that you mentioned in one of your writings. Uh, the essay was City Stories of Nature and Grace and Urban Pilgrim's Progress. So that's the paper you write 2016 in Communio. We can link to it too. And the passage is from G.K. Chesterton, The Man Who Was Thursday. An artist is identical with an anarchist. You might transpose the words anywhere. An anarchist is an artist. An artist disregards all governments, abolishes all conventions. The poet delights in disorder only. If it were not so, the most poetical thing in the world would be the Underground Railway. So it is. Nonsense! Why do all the clerks and navies and in the railway trains look so sad and tired? So very sad and tired. I will tell you. It's because they know that the train is going right. It's because they know that whatever place they have taken a ticket for, that place they will reach. It is because after they have passed slow and square, they know that the next station must be Victoria and nothing but Victoria. Or oh, their wild rapture, or oh, their eyes like stars and their souls again in Eden in the next station where unaccountably Baker Street. It is you who are unpoetical. If what you say of clerks is true, they can only be as prosaic as your poetry. The rare, strange thing is to hit the mark. The gross, obvious thing is to miss it. We feel it is epical when man with one wild arrow strikes a distant bird. Is it not also epical when man with one wild engine strikes a distant station? Chaos is dull. Because in chaos, the, the train might indeed go anywhere, to Baker Street or to Baghdad. But man is a magician, and his whole magic is in this, that he does say Victoria, and lo. It is Victoria. I tell you, every time a train comes in, I feel it has broken past batteries of besiegers and that man has won a battle against chaos. I have the sense of a hairbreadth escape. And when I hear the guard shout out the word Victoria, it is not an unmeaning word. It is to me the cry of a herald announcing conquest. It is to me indeed Victoria. It is the victory of Adam. End of passage. Wow. So I had the chance to read this aloud to one of our students uh, just this past Saturday as he was arguing that beauty is messy and beauty, you know, beauty doesn't need order and there's not an objective that needs to be, there's, there's nothing objective in it. And I think that this was a very good, um, a very good answer to it. I think, you know, speaking of design and of architecture, this passage made me think also of like, well, if we buy a couch where four people, you know, for four people, we should have a house with four people in it. If we sleep in a bed, you know, meant for two, there should be two people on that bed. And like, it feels like everything instead now is built for a purpose and used for another one as a sign of freedom. Mm. What would mm. you say about that? Ah. Uh. <laughs> well, let's see. I don't know. I mean, I that's a that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think that there's a virtue. Uh, there are many virtues to living modestly, and you know, part of that is a kind of living in solidarity with people who have you know fewer fewer means. At the same time, there's also, and again, I guess this just this goes back to a long two thousand year history of of 
Christians, but uh, sort of thinking about about wealth and its proper use. And and obviously this is not limited to Christians, but the Christians have given a lot of thought to this. There's also something to be said about um, a place that uh, maybe is a little a little slightly larger uh, and and is and is generously shared. Um, so that uh, I think that the worst thing is is a sort of living alone in luxury. Um, that that uh, that the idea would be that um, if if you're you know to the extent that we have wealth we want to be generous, uh, but we don't you know we we don't we we want to try to live lightly on the land uh, and in the world. And um, uh, again, I I think that there's a, a long a long and instructive history of of Christian thinking about these things. And I'm it's it's one it's one of those reasons that I'm happy to be a Catholic. So. And as well, if there's also, if I may, you made me think of how you also mentioned in your writings, you know, they're not just about buildings and they're a lot more about philosophy. At least the ones you shared with me uh, when you mentioned Alistair McIntyre and his take of, you know, you use his expression that we're dependent rational animals. And you also have a great point against basically the social contract when you when you state very clearly that community comes before the person, not meaning that is more important because, you know, human yeah. dignity, of course, is, is, but there is no, there is no child if there is no parents before him, right? Like there is no I before, before there is a we. And so maybe what we see also, like it's a, all these apartments for single people or individuals or like, they somehow represent the social contract, if you want. But if that yeah. was wrong, then also the way we're living is wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, just to bring this back to urbanism, I mean, the the, we, the there was a there was a theory that was being propounded, you know, not long ago that that um, we should um, think of cities as you know uh, modern cities as being especially suited to the creative class. And that, uh, and that's uh, also arguing that the demographics of the time were such that cities really should be designed for uh, wealthy retiring boomers and young creative, uh, young creative people, um, and and singles generally singles. And and I always thought at the time, wow, that is such a short sighted view of what a city is, of what human flourishing is, and. Um, and so I, I'm. I think again, one of the great things about new urbanism, I think, with respect, uh, new urbanist ideas with respect to the idea of freedom and belonging, is that they recognize conceptually that that some people, you know, want to live more of a life of freedom, and others want to live more a life of belonging, but that this can be accommodated in a range of urban environments that are more dense and more dense and less dense. And at least it's officially the case in the documents of the new urbanism that that children are important, right? That 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 uh, good places, whether they're small towns or whether they're city neighborhoods, they have to accommodate children, and and that's just a recognition of I think some basic. And that you need <laughs> schools nearby at a walk-in is also what was something that um, I was discussing recently with some friends. You know, only the people that have children really care about their city or, or care about even the government. You can say in a large respect because they have someone that is going to pay the consequences of the bad decisions being made. So somehow children make cities better also because the parents are more invested in, yeah. in having a good, a good city that they live. Um, yeah. So I could talk with you for another three hours, but I think we've already um, abused your time for today. Oh, and Thanks. I also want to leave our audience, you know, with the curiosity to come to your pop to your talk that we we're going to co-sponsor with the Salem Center in January. 
So if they want to hear more about beauty, about cities, about how cities can help or not help us being happy, then they should just, again, check our website and make sure to register for your lecture. For now, I just want to thank you for, uh, for your time, for your wisdom, for the fact that you keep teaching these good things to the students at Notre Dame. Well, thank you, Mariana. You're very kind. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. And I really look forward to my visit uh, to Austin to talk. We'll be waiting for you, Philip. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this. We can continue our programming. And of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.